This morning we're going to continue our study in God's designs for marriage, and this morning in part three, and the first two parts as we've looked at really some difficult subjects, I don't know that there's anything that touches more lives in a negative way uh, than the dangers of divorce. And to prove that to you, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'd like for you to be very honest and don't be embarrassed or ashamed, but if you have experienced in either your family, immediate family, brothers, sisters, up to like your grandparents, how many of you have had a divorce in your family? Notice that it's virtually every hand in the room. And I want you to just understand that. And so this morning, before we begin, I want to remind you that from God's perspective, no divorce, no divorce is ever his perfect will. Never is it his perfect will. God's design for marriage is that it is permanent. God's design for marriage is that it's one man and one woman for life. Having said that, we're flawed, we're failed, we are human. Uh, We oftentimes do not do what God's word plainly declares. And so no one is to leave this place weighted down with guilt or shame or harmed or hurt. But I think we do a disservice to God when we will not stand for what he stands for. We must have his view of marriage. And his view of marriage, quite simply, is very plain. And we'll see that this morning. Verse 10 here in 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to turn there. And I want to set the stage this morning. He says, now to the married I command. First he says, I command. Notice what he says, yet, not I, but the Lord. And for those who say, well, I don't really like the writings of Paul. I like the writings of Jesus because he's nicer. I'm not really fond of Paul because, after all, he was a Pharisee and he looks at everything from a legalistic standpoint. Not I, Paul says, but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. And even if she does depart... Let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. There's no plainer command in all of Scripture than that. But there are words that add to it. And I want to share with you this morning, and I'm going to spend some time, because there are those who believe that the Bible is largely culturally irrelevant to today. There are those who say that mankind has advanced and so these commands are no longer in force. There are those who say, well, God's really not that interested in the human institution of marriage. There are those that say marriage is what we want it to be because it is really largely a human institution. To those who think that way, I say, your Bible says very differently. Your Bible established marriage, and through it, the word of the Lord was transmitted to us. It was God who ordained marriage. It was God who presided over the first marriage. 
It is God who has dictated to us what marriage should be and how it functions. He is the one that's put the limitations on human sexuality and confined it only to marriage. And because it is God's institution, we need to make sure that we're doing it God's way. And God did not invent no-fault divorce. God never intended for marriages to break up over anything. I emphasize the word anything because that's God's position. There is no verse in your entire Bible that says, if my husband or if my wife does this, you should, emphasis on should, divorce them. There isn't a single verse. Unfortunately, much of the churches in America believe what the world teaches about divorce, not what God teaches about divorce. God hates divorce. He loathes divorce. He has over and over again reminded us of what marriage is supposed to be, And if we fail in our marriages, the only option is not just simply to divorce. The option God wants is repentance, restoration, and forgiveness, irregardless of what's happened, including for adultery. God hates divorce. And I pray as we study the word this morning that we'll be strengthened. Maybe you need to grab this CD and hand it to that couple that's contemplating divorce today. Because divorce rarely, if ever, makes anything better. It virtually never solves problems. It may be inevitable in some cases But for us as the church, we need to take God's view of it. And he hates it. Would you pray with me? Father God, as we turn our attention to this delicate and difficult subject, pray that you would take each of our hearts and cradle them, Lord. And I want to pray very specifically for those that have been touched by divorce. Lord, I myself, my hand was the first one up. Lord, I know the dangers. We know the dangers. We know the hurt. We know the pain. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us, cause us to take your view, cause us to take your stand, cause us to be strengthened. Lord, help us to, as you do, Lord, hate divorce and before marriage. God, we love you. We thank you for the passages of Scripture that even challenge our worldview. We pray that you bless us as we study Minister to us, each one of us, in our point of need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a few things this morning because I think it's very important to put this in context. I'm going to be quoting from a number of different sources, and I want to just simply give them to you so that they'll be on record on the Internet and on our CDs. You can jot them down if you like, but they'll be there recorded uh, from Dr. Walter Mueller. His book, Brokenness Deep and Wide, it's the Journal of Youth Culture. It was done 
uh, in 2006 by the California Pacific University Foundation, uh, the Josh McDowell Center for Research and Social Family Services, uh, a book called Quiet Lives of Turbulence, which is quoted from in Christianity Today in March of 2006, from a study that was done by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, that report was published in 2003, updated in 2008. The National Survey of Family Growth, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. I'm quoting from the Gallup Youth Survey of 2003 and for the First ever marriage dissolution, divorce, and remarriage done by the United States government and, and reported by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. That was published in 2008. So these stats are, are about as new as they come in, in large bodies of statistical analyses. And I want to give you five things that, that we should be looking at when we look at our world and we look at the danger of divorce, because that's what's in view here. Paul is now saying... Stay married. And he's making it very clear. Stay married. And he's not really adding to anything. He's simply repeating what Jesus has already said. Stay married. One of the changes that we see in our culture today is the acceptance of divorce. And I want to tell you that the statistical analyses really result the things that we see now come from the 1960s and 70s, the sexual revolution that occurred during that period of time, the legalization of no-fault divorce, as well as abortion. And because of that, the, the foundation of marriage in a human sense has been damaged. Currently in the United States of America, 1.2 or so million divorces are finalized annually. That is a staggering number. The average couple marrying in recent years, and we're talking about since the 1970s, the average couple marrying during that time, they have a 51% chance that they will be divorced. In other words, there is a higher chance they'll be divorced than stay married if you've been married since 1970. First time in the history of the United States that that's happened. 60% of all children born from 1990 to today will spend, 60% of them, will spend at least some of their childhood in a broken home. 60%. The average for divorces in families where they were married from 1987 until today is 63% in, in divorce. It's getting worse. It's not getting better because of our view of marriage. It's why we're, we're, we're actually debating whether marriage is even between a man and a woman right now. Why would it matter? And I want to share this with you, and I want to speak very directly to you. Seriously, why does it matter if we have such a dim view of marriage that 52% of Christian marriages end in divorce? Why does it matter? I think there's a, there's a healthy argument on the other side if that's the case. And I say to you, when Christians divorce as regularly as non-Christians and ignore the plain teaching of Scripture, does not the other side have a very logical reason for why they're saying what they're saying? And the answer to that question is they do. In her book that she co-authored with Dr. Mueller, Dr. Judith Wallerstein, discovered several things that are the evidences of divorced families. 
three in five of all children that were interviewed that came from divorced homes felt rejected by one or both of the parents. Three in five. More than 50% of them suffered from psychological, mental, and emotional stresses and or damage which resulted in poor grades, broken relationships themselves, and a propensity to divorce that's actually higher than the incidence in the general population of their parents. Our kids are watching. Her study also concluded that rebellion, depression, lack of attention to authority, all stem from that view which came from the valuelessness of marriage. Is divorce dangerous? Second change, and this one is equally as bad. Currently, 52% of all heterosexual couples in the United States are not married. They're living together. They're cohabitating, living in sin, and having children. They're not married. So why would marriage matter if half of all people, a little more than that, don't get married in the first place? And inside of the church, the church turns a blind eye. Well, you know, after all, they're just being kids. After all, I don't know if my son or my daughter really should marry that person, so it would probably be better if they didn't get married. But if they live together, family of God, what I just said to you, I've heard in my own office. I don't know if my son or my daughter should marry them. I would rather they live together than go through a divorce. Now let me give you the statistic for those who live together and the chances of their marriage lasting. 82% of all couples who cohabitate end in divorce. 82%. They live together without marriage. If they have children, it goes to 91%. You you see, we've lost view of God's view of marriage. In 2004, this is for the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, 36% of all births in the United States were born to unwed mothers. 36%. That number was less than 5% in 1960. should shock you. You should be silent right now. It should be freaking you out if you have children. If you're unmarried and you're here this morning, maybe you're contemplating living with a boyfriend, girlfriend, potential spouse. The stats are stacked against you. God was right. He knew exactly what he was doing when he said one man, one woman for life and no sex, period, apart from that relationship. A third change is a rise in the fatherlessness of homes. Tonight, as we sit here, 34% 
of all children in the entire country will go to bed in a house without their biological father. 28% will go to bed without a father at all. And that's largely due to the number of cohabitating couples. Sadly, more children are being raised today that do not know who their father is than do. That's a staggering statistic. That means that more than 50% of all children really don't have a relationship with their father at all, of any kind. They may know who he is. They may know where he lives. 50% of all children, roughly, 49.85% of all children who live without their father have never been in their father's home. So when God says, I hate divorce, says the Lord, why do you think he hates divorce? Because it destroys a culture. It rots the very fabric of a nation. It will kill you as individuals. It will destroy us as a community. It will wreak havoc in our nation and in our homes. A fourth change. It's the increasing number of women in the workplace. And I know I'm going to have the women's libbers yelling at me on the Internet tomorrow. I don't care. But the simple fact of the matter is that when you look at that statistic alone, in 1960, roughly 39% of all women had a job outside the home. You know where that number is today? It's over 80. It's 81.2%. And I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody. I realize how expensive it is to live here. But I can tell you the Gills made a choice for 16 years to struggle, get by, and for Jeff to work two, three, four, whatever number of jobs Jeff needed to work, ministry positions, take on extracurricular activities, build decks, do whatever to keep my wife at home. Do without the toys. Do without the vacations. Do without whatever children need guidance at home. And there's no substitute for it. And again, I don't mean to put a guilt trip on anybody. And I know not every circumstance is exactly the same. But in a general sense, have we not become so used to 52-inch flat-screen TVs and all of the other things that money can buy and larger houses I shared with you some months ago in one of our studies. You realize the average size of a house in 1960 was just a hair over 1,200 square feet. Today it stands over 2,000 square feet, and yet we have less children. Family of God, that is materialism and greed. That's all that is. And I know that shocks and hurts some. But that's the case. Not trying to put anybody down. If you've got a big house, praise God. Use it for Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, we've lost sight of what God thinks about marriage and what God thinks about divorce. And we've become so used to what the world does that all of a sudden it doesn't seem all that wrong anymore. 
It's like somehow maybe God's okay with it. That it'll just be all right. Having said that, can God heal anything? Yes, he can, and he can heal divorce too. But make no mistake about the damage that it does. A fifth and final thing, and this one's important, is the amount of time that parents spend with their own kids. The old adage that it's better to spend quality time rather than quantity time is frankly a bunch of hooey. That's a very technical word for dumb. Silly, wrong, incorrect. And I could use a few more, but they're less friendly. There's no substitute for time with your own kids. And you know what? That means you've got to die to self. And you've got to stop being selfish in your marriage. And you've got to make your kids a priority. Because if you don't, they will bring stuff into your life that will ultimately stress your marriage like you can't believe. And I wonder how many divorces occur because there was not enough time spent with the kids and the kids become the source of the friction that causes the divorce. How many, how many kids would be different if mom and dad were seen loving each other and spending time with them? And I know some of these things are tough. The result of the 60s and 70s sexual revolution has been that by age 16, one in four girls will have been sexually molested. One in six boys will have been sexually molested. By age 18, that goes to almost 40% for girls and over 30% for guys. You want to know the sad part? Most often the perpetrator is a near kin, somebody that's either directly linked to the family or a family member. God designed marriage as the protection of human society. Do you understand that? God designed marriage as the protection for human society. It is the basic foundational building block of all society. If you divest society of marriage, it becomes nothing but a group of people selfishly seeking after their own. That's it. And if you don't believe that, look at Europe. Look what's happened to the marriage rates, the birth rates. It's all becoming about materialism. It's all becoming about what I can do for me. And society itself, functionally and foundationally, begins to break down. Verse 10, here in 1 Corinthians 7. And now to the married I command, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now do you understand that Scripture is absolutely, perfectly crystal clear? For a reason. It doesn't solve anything. I cannot tell you, when you begin to look at remarriage and what happens there, the statistics become staggering. 
A little over 80% of all second marriages fail. Over 90% of all third marriages fail. And if you get beyond that, it almost is 100%. Those are staggering numbers. Why do you suppose that is? Because marriage is God's answer to the human condition. He intends it to be for life. He intends it to be broken for no reason whatsoever. And when we choose to break up a marriage, we are doing more than disrupting those two people. But to the rest, he says in verse 12, not I, not the Lord, say. Now notice he says exactly the opposite here. Because there is no command from the Lord himself. Jesus did not talk about unmarried people who were non-believers. He said, if any brother has a wife and does not believe she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. In other words, he's talking about an unequally yoked couple now. Where one is married, or one is a Christian, and one is not a Christian. And a woman who has a husband does not believe. He's willing to live with her. Let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. That the influence of a Christian in a marriage of any kind is a good thing. Always. And again, notice the emphasis on the marriage. Even if it's not ideal. Even if you made a mistake and you married somebody who's not a believer, you still don't get a get-out-of-jail-free card. You still don't get to call the shots. You still don't get to say, well, you know, I'm just really tired of this house that we live in. You know, if my husband doesn't get a new job, that's just over. My wife gains another two pounds. I mean, we're done. Now, as I say those things, I've heard those things. They've been said to me in counseling. No, this is not what I signed up for. Do you know how many times I've heard that one? You know, when we got married, it was like this, but it's not like that now. So she broke the covenant. He broke the covenant. Find that verse in your Bible. The covenant you made is with God. The covenant Connie and I made is with God. That's why when somebody comes to me, and, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody. Prenuptial agreements are a recipe for failure. Do you know why? Because the assumption is failure. It's not going to work out, and I want to protect myself because it's not going to work out. That's what a prenuptial agreement is. It is a lack of commitment. It is me saying to you, I don't trust you. And because I've already got all this stuff, I don't want you to have it, just in case this doesn't work. You see what marriage has done? Marriage has morphed into the way the world looks at it. And again, not trying to put a guilt trip on anybody, but see it for what it is. This is not God's plan. God didn't put these laws on the book. Some people will say to me, well, you know, we can do this because it's legal. Yep. You can drink. You can fornicate. There's a lot of things that you can do. They're legal. But just as Paul's already said, all things are lawful, but they don't edify they don't build up, and I won't be brought into the mastery of any. You want your life mastered? See what divorce does to it. 
It'll be something you think about for the rest of your days. And the ramifications of it creep into every aspect of your life. Mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, financial, you name it. It goes into every nook and every cranny. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart for a brother or brother or sister is not in bondage in such cases. Sometimes there's nothing you can do when an unbeliever says, I'm done, I'm out of here. They don't have the Spirit of God. They're incapable of understanding uh, spiritual principles. They don't believe that the Word is true. And, and there may be nothing you can do, but that is largely rare. And I wonder how many marriages could be saved and bring them to the next place that this goes to, to where that husband or that wife has the capacity to maybe win that spouse to Christ because they gave up too soon and too quickly. Too early. Just that it's not worth it. But God's called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband? How do you know, O husband, whether you'll save your wife? In other words, from God's perspective, divorce is the very, very, very last thing that he wants to see happen. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 says this, and this is really uh, one of those verses that we ought to have underlined in our Bibles, because it puts it into perspective, for the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Therefore, take heed with your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. I can't tell you how many times I have seen the effect of, of divorce be treacherousness. Self-seeking, pain-inflicting, brute treachery. When that happens, it's not God. Somebody comes to me and they say, you know, well, I just, you know, I just, I hope that they, you know, do this or I hope they do that. That's not the Lord, family of God. Your Bible, Jesus said, do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you for my name's sake. And if your brother offends you, go to your brother and be reconciled to your brother. And if he doesn't hear you, take another and see if that doesn't work. And if that doesn't work, take it to the church. I can't tell you how many times I've been forced to listen to, I'm done. Absolute unilateral abandonment of the relationship because of something. When God says, be reconciled. Jesus in Matthew 19 said this in verse 7. And remember he was being questioned by the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were trying to trap him. And he said, and they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He's talking about the issue of divorce. As if it were a command from God. And he said to them, the he being Jesus, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. Notice he didn't blame it on God. Notice he didn't say, thus says the Lord. God didn't tell you to. But Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. Notice he says, Moses, not the Lord, permitted you to divorce your wives. In other words, he allowed it. Didn't ordain it doesn't like it, he still hates it, it's still a bad thing, it still produces all kinds of evil in your life. 
But from the beginning, it was not so. It wasn't God's plan ever. And it's still never God's plan. How many of God, I'm going to say something very bold and very direct. Divorce is never God's perfect will. Never. If it is his will at all, it can only be his permissive will. In other words, he allows it. That's what this passage says. He allows it because of the hardness of men's hearts. But it's never his perfect will. If you were to call up God on the God phone, which I know you guys all have. It's that little red phone's in the kitchen. You call up God on the God phone. You say, you know, my wife is just being a real terrible toad right now. And she has burned my toast for six straight weeks. Is it okay to divorce her? He's going to say, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Do you not remember who you are? Are you not a child of grace? Has not my mercy rained down upon you? You see, but we pick and choose the things that we think someone else should have to suffer for. That's not the Lord. Divorce is never, never God's perfect will. He allows it, and there's grace for it. And there's mercy that can come afterwards. When there's repentance, God is able to heal. But it will always be a bad thing. For I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and there's the reason that's given in Scripture from Jesus' perspective. And notice he doesn't say that he commands it. He simply allows it. Marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. It just simply creates a long string of problematic relationships that from the time they are entered into until the time you exit this planet will have fruits in them that are not good, period. Does that mean that if you've suffered through a divorce that God can't use you? No, God can use you. But he cannot use you the same as if you had not been through the divorce. And likely will not use you the same as if you had not been through the divorce. Is there healing for that divorce? Yes, of course. God is able. And because of his grace, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. But we need to see divorce the way God sees it. Damaging, destructive, and he hates it. When you look at what God says about marriage, which he defined and ordained, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 24, says it was his idea. It wasn't man's idea. It is not a civil institution. Whenever anybody tells you that, you can tell them, uh-uh, God invented it. God designed marriage, not man. Genesis chapter 24 that that commitment in marriage is essential to the marriage itself. That's why living together doesn't produce the same environment as marriage. It lacks the commitment. And because of the lack of commitment, there is little depth, if any, to the relationship. Not married, there's nothing to bind us together. Yeah, we got a couple of kids, but you know, after all, what am I really going to lose? 
The commitment is essential. Genesis chapter 29, verses 10 through 11, gives us a picture that even romance is a, is a wonderful part of marriage. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 34. That marriage holds great joy. It creates the best environment for raising children. Now, sometimes that doesn't happen, and I recognize that. But it is God's ideal. It's what he wants. It's how he's designed us as human beings. He wants children raised in a home where mom and dad love each other from the time those kids are born until the time God takes them home. Period. That's the best. Malachi chapter 2 reminds us that unfaithfulness breaks the marriage bond. So I already shared with you in Matthew 19, marriage is permanent as far as God's concerned. There's no trial marriage. There's no such thing as a committed relationship. There's no such thing as cohabitation. All of those things are man's plans, not God's. And they don't work. The statistics bear those out as not working. Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us that marriage is based on the principle and the practice of agape love. It is me dying to myself and trying to outlove my wife. It is her dying to herself and trying to outlove me. It's not me trying to get out of her what I want and she trying to get out of me what she wants. It is us dying to ourselves and simply trying to outlove each other. That's what makes marriage great. That's what transcends difficulty as well. Because if it's all about what you can get, I guarantee you, you're going to bump into some times when you don't get anything, nothing. It's just, wow, this is just a dry time in the marriage. And you're looking at it, man, I haven't had a day off in almost a week now. It's amazing to me how many little things creep in. And if the marriage is based on selfishness, which is the world's view, by the way, we'll stay married as long as she looks good. Stay married as long as he makes enough money, or vice versa. Not trying to generalize too much here. But you know what, man? You know we're going to have to give up our fourth car. I mean, whew, I never bargained for that. Marriages like that won't last, and that's why God says, "Don't build a marriage like that." Once Paul makes very clear that God believes that marriage is permanent and that we are not to leave for any reason, period. Even the bad things. Family of God, can I tell you how many times I've had people come into my office and it's almost as if they're giving me a test to see if the things their spouse has done are sufficient for them to be able to divorce them. I can't tell you how many times that happens. They walk in with a laundry list on a yellow legal pad of all the stuff that's been done in the last however many years. And he did this, and she did that, and he did this, and she did that, and he did this, and she did that. And it's just on and on and on and on. And it is as if I am being interviewed by an attorney. Might I remind you, and we'll get there when we get to chapter 13 of this wonderful book, love keeps no record of wrong. If you're one of those list keepers, 
guarantee your list will bite you someday. Because you know what a list does? It facilitates and necessitates another list. Because ultimately that other person is forced to defend themselves. And if your defense is grace and forgiveness, then you don't need a list. God hates divorce. And that's why in this case of these likely pagan spouses, because he goes on to talk about unequally yoked couples, he even says to them, if they'll stay, stay. Marriage is good even if the situation's bad. Isn't that awesome? Marriage is good even if the situation is bad. Stay. You might be the instrument that brings that person to Christ. And you won't get that opportunity if you just flee. Now, does that mean that God's asking you to stay in a dangerous situation? And I get asked this question. You know, my husband this or my wife that. And I've had, I've had everything from, you know, we, danger as in physical danger to financial danger, emotional danger, all of those things. They're all not good, by the way, okay? And they're all also not God's plan, by the way, okay? Let's make that clear. But how much chance do you think you have of changing somebody if you simply run? And the answer is, you won't have any. You'll have no impact in that person's life. They won't see you praying. They won't see you reading. They won't see you going to church even if they won't. They won't see you praying with your children. They won't see Bible verses in the home. They will not hear the word of the Lord. They will be without influence if you who are a Christian simply bail. The question I believe was asked in the context of this particular letter, because you've got all this sexuality in the city of Corinth, and you've got the temptations that go with it, and you've got a pagan spouse who go, well, I should marry me a pagan, or I should marry a, a saved person. You know, I'm unequally yoked. I've got to fix that. No, marriage is so designed by God that even if it's not ideal, he wants you to stay in it. That's his plan. Now, you may not be able to make that happen. Maybe you're married to someone who does not know the Lord. And it may come, as we believe one of the reasons Paul did not have a spouse at this time, it's possible his wife left him. We believe because he was a member of the Sanhedrin, it's likely that he was married. And because he was married, he now has no spouse, so she likely either died or left him. It can be costly to stand for Christ, but it's always the best thing. The huge question that comes up about divorce and remarriage. And I want to simply say to you that that is a very short question with an extremely long answer. People want a one-size-fits-all answer to that particular question. There isn't one. It's the balance of the truth of God's word and the graceful application thereof. In other words, we take God's grace and we take his mercy and we apply it to that situation. But I can tell you this, from God's perspective, there should be very few divorces ever. That's clear. That's clear. 
So the best way to not have to worry about that question is don't get a divorce. Don't be part of a divorce. Don't encourage divorce. Don't say to your children, well, you know, she's always been mean to you anyway. You deserve better. Do you know how many times I've heard that? And I understand why. Nobody wants to see their children agonizing in a bad marriage. Nobody. And there's grace for that. But be real careful that you don't drop the standard because you don't like what it says. That's been the history of the church. That's why the divorce rate in the church is exactly the same as it is in the world. That's why the proponents of gay marriage are pointing at the divorce rate in the church and going, why does it matter? We need to have that high view of marriage that Christ has. Notice it says here that that believing spouse sanctifies. It actually means in this context not to save, but to make clean. In other words, that there's an influence for the Lord now in the home. And those children are in an environment that's clean. That, that it shares the love of the Lord with them. doesn't mean they're saved. To as many as believed, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. To believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be saved. Scripture is very clear. No one gets saved because of someone else's faith. But the influence, vastly different if there's a Christian in the home. Amen? So what do you think the influence will be if the Christian goes out of the home? And now perhaps those children are being raised by a completely godless person. Can I say to you, I've had the horror of watching that happen. I've had the horror of burying a child from that environment. Seeing what happens. I've watched what happens when godliness goes out of a home and godlessness takes over. It's never good. That sanctification, that cleansing that happens from the Word of God going forth. All of this is to say, God loves marriage and God hates divorce. It's pretty clear in His Word. And if you know somebody who's contemplating divorce and they're a Christian, they need to be really, really really careful about whose voice they're hearing. Because the enemy wants to speak lies. And he wants to say it's hopeless. He wants to tell you you'll be better off without the bum. He wants to shout in your ear that your kids will be better off. You'll be better off financially. You'll be better off emotionally. You'll be better off in general. God cannot simultaneously love and hate the same thing. And when he declares he hates something, he hates it eternally. He hates sin. He hates divorce. The seven things that he hates, a lying tongue, all of those things. God still hates those things. He didn't somehow change his standards just because our modern world has evolved. We need to stand for marriage. And we need to stand against divorce. 
And we need to do everything we can to save every marriage. We need to do everything we can to restore and reconcile every relationship. We need to make sure we're not giving up when God's not done yet. We need to suffer long and be kind. And in saying all of this, I know it's hard, family of God. I know it's hard. And I know it hurts. And I know at times we want to give up. And I know there are days that you just wonder, Lord, how can I last another minute? As Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you. And it's not to be trivial. It's not to be trite. It's to be truthful. His grace is sufficient. And his mercies are new every morning. And he is able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, exceedingly in that abundance. He is able to save to the uttermost. You see, when you start hearing the promises of God, as opposed to the lies of the enemy, the situation is vastly different. When you lay hold of the truth of what God's word says and you believe it, and to believe it is to act on it, then the outcome is in God's hands not just simply a divorce attorney. And I pray that we'll take God's stance on marriage and God's stance against divorce and do all that we can to save every marriage, to be willing to go the extra mile, to be willing to sit down with that friend, that family member, and agonize and cry, get involved, That hurts, doesn't it? But if you can't be hurt, you can't be loved either. Those two things are inseparable. The cry of the cross was also the cry of love. That pain was also love. And I believe that's the picture that God wants us to have for marriage. Marriage is the most wonderful institution God ever created on earth. Let's do all we can to protect it. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning for your power over the enemy, Lord, that greater is he who's in us than he who's in this world, that we are overcomers in you, Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we have things come up in our own marriages, Lord, as we know people who are struggling perhaps in their marriage, that we would be able to to be that voice, that salt, that light, that tenderness, that caring voice, that one who is willing to stand in the gap, God, to bring that restoration, to make it possible. We pray that you would work now in those marriages that maybe even in this room are are being tested today. God, we ask for your hand of protection to be upon every marriage that's represented here. Lord, every family member. God, cause us to stand strong. Help us to lay down the selfishness to put away the desire to please ourselves or to pick up that cross daily and follow you. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for the beauty of marriage. We thank you for the sanctity of marriage. And we pray that you would protect our marriages, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand.